All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for Scripture and thank you for illuminating it to us. Thank you for the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our lives, for He does convict us both of salvation and sanctification. These are two things, as He's been teaching us, uh, occur daily uh, as per Your grace. Thank You for reminding us of these base truths so that we might have that great hope and that confidence for future things. We are most grateful, of course, and thankful for Your Son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt against us, to make a night like this one even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel Salvation and Sanctification, Part 82. Uh, we've had a little bit of a sidebar on some, uh, you know, sort of some special topics, uh, reminding us of the distinctions. If we're going to go read our Bibles, uh, what's the best way? maybe to approach it, what's a nice strategy to approach it with. Uh, we talked about theology, about applying theology to life and not necessarily the other way around. Uh, some you know, tried and true strategies um, that the Spirit wanted all of you to be aware of. Uh, from Tuesday's lesson on uh, the topic of perspectives, we had perspective matters. When reading theology, we must tap into the new creature's perspective. This was one of the takeaways I've got from uh, Tuesday's message. When reading theology, we must tap into the new creature's perspective, the one that never has a problem with the plainly stated things in the Bible. You know, it's only the flesh that has a knee-jerk reaction to things in the Bible. Think about that. And that's what the Spirit's saying. He's saying, Learn to focus and tap the new creature's perspective. The new creature is never going to have a problem with something uh, that's clearly stated in the Bible. Matter of fact, it's going to rejoice in it. But the flesh, on the other hand, may have a knee-jerk reaction, uh, and we may try to sort of whittle down theology proper or pervert it, uh, sometimes even unknowingly because our flesh is really good at doing things under the covers, you know, covertly. Um, but nonetheless, the Spirit's been pointing this out, that we need to have the right perspective when we do read theology proper. It's very important. Uh, so again, when reading theology, we must tap into the new creature's perspective, the one that never has a problem with the plainly stated things in the Bible. The new creature implicitly trusts the Word at face value. And that's a very important thing, folks. I think a lot of people... Uh, and I was guilty of this as well for years, read the Bible with a certain lens. And the lens obscures the pure things in the Bible. Uh, and that's a tragedy. So I'm going to quote uh, Mr. Scott Grande on this, and I was laughing out loud when he said it. Sometimes we think too much. And it sounds funny, but it's very true. Sometimes we think too much. Sometimes we just overthink things. And I certainly can relate to that. So I kind of chuckled when Scott said this because it reminds me of a number of conversations I've had with myself and others even over the past couple of years. 
if we can just learn to read our Bibles at face value instead of reading with a preconceived notion about the complexity of it, we'd be so much better off. And what the Spirit's been really trying to drive home uh, is this. I don't think anyone in here had a problem with reading the weeds. I think most of us were pretty good at reading the weeds and doing word studies and getting stuck on, you know, this thing and that thing and, and, you know, and spending hours. And there's nothing wrong with this, but, I mean, let's face it, as a, and I don't mean to say this condescendingly, but as a lay person, as someone that's not behind a pulpit who gets literally, who is employed to spend all their time in the Bible, uh, you have to pick and choose. There's only so much time in the day. And what this pulpit's been saying is, choose wisely. Choose wisely. Choose to read your Bible for the big picture. If you don't have the big picture, you're going to be lost, and you're going to tumble uh, and and mangle things and have to do all kinds of mental gymnastics to make your own quote-unquote theology fit. So the Spirit's been saying, read for the big picture. Big picture reading. If we read the Bible with the gospel lens, and that's why he took us all the way back to the gospel. All the way back, part 82, we've not left the gospel. We spent the first 20 hours of this series just on the gospel, getting it right. 20 hours. And you know how packed these lessons are. 20 hours just getting the gospel correct so that when we do continue on, we have that lens. So when we read the Bible with the gospel lens, the fullness of the gospel, not the watered-down one, not the cheap meandering one, the one that changes uh, per decade, it seems, we clearly see God's doctrines, the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. However, if we read it with a doctrinal lens, which is reading the weeds first, in other words, we run the risk of losing sight of the gospel. For example, 1 Corinthians 13, the whole um, Paul's whole dissertation, if you would, on love. What about it then? We miss out on those things. We become loveless because all we become are academic snobs. We miss the big picture. We lose sight of the gospel. So if we read with a doctrinal lens, we, re- we run the risk of losing sight of the gospel itself. For example, love. Go to 1 John 4.13. 1 John 4.13. So, again, the Spirit's been reminding us to read. When we read, total encouragement from this pulpit. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. I'm trying to help you out. I'm giving you extracurricular reading even. How to master the English Bible. That kind of a thing. Uh, on purpose. So that you, when you read it, you're comfortable. And that when you read it, you do read for big pictures. There's nothing wrong with doing a little word study here and there, but you've got to be careful. The thing that tempers those things, the things that keep word studies and you know, doctrinal this and doctrinal that, the, things, the thing that keeps all that in check or grounded is the big picture. Otherwise, you're just kind of loose-leaf going anywhere. So you've got to have that big picture. Again, 1 John 4.13 By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, in other words, we are believers, because He has given us of His Spirit. In other words, that's how we're going to know that we're believers, because the Spirit will tell us we're believers. We have seen and testify 
that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. In other words, that's a shorthanded way of saying the one who accepts the gospel. He who, or whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That means you're speaking about a believer, of course. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Only believers are indwelled. By this, love is perfected with us. Interesting, we're going to get back to that. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Up here on the board, love is perfected with us, and that's uh, uh, the focus on the word with there. It's not uh, maybe what you think it is. Love is perfected with us. This doesn't mean that at salvation we become perfect lovers. It means that perfect love is now with us, providing us with a definite hope and confidence regarding eternal life. Whose love is it after all? It's God's love. So think about it this way. Love is perfected with us This doesn't mean that at salvation we become perfect lovers. It means that perfect love is now with us. Who gives us perfect love? God does. Providing us with a definite hope and confidence regarding eternal life. So it doesn't mean that God's love somehow matures. For God's love is already perfect. If perfect love is with us, it doesn't mean that it needs to mature. Who gives us his love? Is, are we saying, are we suggesting that God's love needs to mature? I hope not. It doesn't mean that God's love somehow matures for it is already perfect. If anything, it means that our vision, quote unquote, of it gets clearer over time. But the distinction here is that it is already present in us since God is love and we are indwelt by him at salvation. So, of course, God, if God is love, perfect love is with us at salvation. Now, we may not see it all, and that may affect our sanctification. We may not, quote-unquote, realize it all. We may not even, quote, accept it all. We may not have the right faith to understand it all, to have wisdom about it all, to, to realize the fullness of it at all. But nonetheless, it's perfect love, and it was given to us at salvation. For God is love. And he indwells us. So the distinction is important. It's important to remember that the apostle is speaking about salvation issues here, not so-called spiritual maturity ones. God's love is perfect. If it weren't, where would our hope be? Think about that. If God's love had to mature somehow, what would that, what would that do to our hope, let's say? Jesus, I hope it matures enough to what? God's love is perfect. If it weren't, where would our hope be? Our very hope in things eternal rests on the fact that God is perfect. And since God is love, 1 John 4, 8, this love John mentions must be perfect as well. Verse 18, a favorite of ours, There is no fear in love, this is a doctrinal statement, but perfect love 
casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. The more we realize this perfect love exists in us, the less fearful we are as believers. However, the unbeliever is wrought with fear. It's part of their punishment even in time. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Let me give you some insight onto that as well. I think sometimes verses like 21 give people fits and it helps to go to the original language. I'm not going to take you there, but I'm going to give you a a pretty in-depth Bible commentary from Cambridge on the last two verses, 20 and 21, that we just read up here on the board. Cambridge Bible Commentary reads this way on these two verses. The apostle thus anticipates a possible objection. That's what he says in verses 20 and 21. He says, don't get so smart there, smarty pants. So this happens a lot in the Bible. We've seen this over and over. Uh, Paul does it all the time as well. Jesus did it all the time. Preemptive, in other words, like a preemptive strike. So the apostle thus anticipates a possible objection. A man may say, I can love God without loving my brother, and I can prove my love by keeping his commandments. Say John 14, 15. Nay, says St. John, your own argument shows your error. You cannot keep his commandments without loving your brother. Again, the apostle thus anticipates a possible objection. This is what the flesh does. See, a good Bible teacher does these things. I do it all the time. Yes, I'm a good Bible teacher. I do it all the time. Why? To preempt your flesh. Because I know how smarty pants you guys can be. You know how I know? Because I'm the same way. I read something, my flesh objects it to a little bit, and what do I start doing? Pelting it. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? What about this? What about that? What about this experience? What about that experience? What about that person's experience? What about Paul's experience? What about Saul's experience? What about this guy's experience? How does this fit? How does this work? So John, being who he is, and this, of course, is around 90 to, I want to say 90, 80, 90 to 95, which was at the end of his life. So John's pretty darn mature in the faith at this point. And he's pointing a few things out and he's saying, don't get smart with me because I already know what you're thinking. <laughs> so he says, he cuts this off at the pass. A man may say, I can love God without loving my brother. And I can prove my love by keeping his commandments. John fourteen fifteen. No, or nay, says St. John, your own argument shows your error. You cannot keep his commandments without loving your brother. Thus, then, we have two revelations of God. Our brother, who is his image and his commandment, which is his will, not to love our brother is a flagrant violation of both. As Pascal puts it, we must know men in order to love them but we must love God in order to know Him. Again, that was just to help you with the understanding of verses 20 and 21. Let's read that again. 
If someone says, I love God, and again, John's doing this, he's cutting a fleshly-type retort, if you would, off at the pass, right at the knees. Don't go there, because you're just going to soil this whole thing. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. In other words, they're tandems. It's not, oh, you should do that. No, these are tandems. That's what John's saying. These two things are one and the same. You can't love God and not your brother. Otherwise, you're a liar. As Paul echoes in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Oh, but I love God and I love this, but I, I can't stand my brother. I, love, I don't love anybody but God. John says you're a liar then. Love as it turns out then, and this has been coming up in our studies for a long time now, love as it turns out is the great litmus test of saving faith. It's what we can evaluate ourselves on. And we have scripture like we just read with John that helps us with that evaluation, that gives us a, 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 almost a formal infrastructure, a structure, a structured approach. Well, what does that mean? Well, look at what John just said. If you say you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. And the love of God can't be in you because these two things come together if it's true love. So the great litmus test of saving faith is actually love. Now, the only person other than God that can evaluate that for you is you. It certainly is not theologically accurate to suggest that a mere mental assent is proof of saving faith. We proved that out in ad nauseum. A lot of people profess to be believers, but that doesn't mean anything. Jesus... Paul, John, and assumably every other apostle knew this and preached this. If you have love for others, true, Christ-like love, then the Spirit will convict you of it. Remember, not all convictions are bad. Most people are like, oh, no, conviction is good. Just like confession can be good. Confession is not always sin. You can confess Jesus is Lord. Same thing with conviction. Conviction is not always, oh, you sinned. Conviction could be like, you love. You're saved. So, if you have true love for others, true Christ-like love, then the Spirit will convict you of it. If He doesn't, you have a problem. So says biblical theology. Not Pastor Ed. If the Spirit's not there saying, you definitely have love for others, then you have a problem. Why do you think a professing Christian unbeliever could care less about experiential sanctification? Dwell on that. Why do you think a professing Christian unbeliever could care less about experiential sanctification? Think about that. We're not going to get into it, but I want you to think about that. Why would a professing Christian unbeliever 
care less about experiential sanctification. Eh, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Why is that? You answer that. I know what the reason is, but obviously the Spirit wants you to figure it out on your own. The great litmus test. The hallmark of true love is a base desire to live for others. That's the epitome. The hallmark means the, the excellence version of something. The hallmark of true love is a base desire to live for others. Greater love is no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. The Spirit will assure you of your faith by revealing to you His love in you. What did it say in 1 John? Perfect love is with us. Well, if it's there, then God the Holy Spirit's going to say, you got it. You see it right here? Dwell on this. I love you. I am love. Go to 1 John 3.19. And remember, folks, this is a supernatural reality. So don't ask me to draw it on the board or, you know, come up with some fancy doctrinal statement about this thing or that thing or some word study that's going to somehow make it clearer. It's not any clearer than what is in Scripture plainly stated. God is love. He's indwelled you if you're a believer. And He's going to let you know, I'm here. You know, like someone comes in your house, hey, I'm here. If you never hear that, guess what? He ain't there. <laughs> First John 3.19 We will know by this that we are of the truth, believers and will assure our heart before Him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Go to 1 John 4.13. 1 John 4.13. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, we are believers, because He has given us of His Spirit. That's how we know. Who's going to convict you that you're saved? Me? Nope. Your neighbor? Nope. Your spouse? Nope. Your kids? Nope. Your mother? Nope. Your father? Nope. God the Holy Spirit will do that for you. So says Scripture. Ain't that lovely? That's beautiful, right? That's a wonderful thing. The new creature's like, yay! Because I get reassured all the time. And that's my great hope. And if you have a new creature, it's elated. But if that thing is missing, well, we know what Scripture says. The great litmus test up here on the board. The hallmark of true love is a base desire to live for others. Greater love is known than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. The Spirit will assure you of your faith by revealing to you His love in you. We just looked at 1 John 3, 19-20 and 4, 13. Practically speaking, think about it this way, too. I mean, just knowing God, our Father, wants His children to be assured of their salvation. You really think that God wants you to be unsure of your salvation? No, He wants you to be sure of it. That's why even if I have to stand behind the pulpit and throw some Scripture out there, like Paul might have in uh, 2 Corinthians 13.5, make sure you're in the faith. That shouldn't bother a true believer at all. 
If anything, as I've written and spoken of, it just, you get a sense of reassurance. Absolutely. The Spirit's right here going, yeah, you're good. This is awesome. I'm totally saved. I'm going, I'm good. God wants his children to be assured. God desires to let those that are of his household know that they truly are members of his family. His spirit convicts believers that they are indeed saved. So says Scripture. We just read some of it. That's not all of it. So says Scripture. Just to put a really big picture perspective on all this, think of it this as well. God elected every believer before they were even born. So concentrate on this for a moment. I'm bringing a few things together. Big, big, big picture. This might help a few of you. Theology existed long before the human experience with it. Christ's mind, the heart of God, the Word of God. Think of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. Before you ever experienced any facet of life or theology or what have you, theology existed. Theology existed long before the human experience with it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's big, big picture, just to help you out as well, put things into perspective. One other really nice reminder from Tuesday's message was this. Have fun reading your Bible. There's no rush. That's something even I've had to learn over the past few years. Always in a rush, you know. We live in Massachusetts, right? And everything's a rush. And you get caught up in this sort of angst. And it's not a rush. I mean, if you have a beautiful seven-course meal in front of you, do you gulp it like Taco Bell? Seriously, you just shovel it in your mouth and then pound a half a bottle of wine and that's it? And it's done in 10, 10 minutes? No! You're going to enjoy this thing, right? You're going to savor it. And once you figure out that you're not missing out on anything, there's not some you know, secret complexity that takes 25 years to figure out. No. What happens is the, the few basic doctrines regarding the gospel just get more and more illuminated. But if you're racing by, you miss out. You miss the taste of it. You miss to, the opportunity to savor it. So savor the gospel. This is what it's all about. Folks, have fun. When you read the Bible with the right perspective, the one I gave you at the beginning, the gospel lens, it's going to taste indescribable. You're going to read it, and all you're going to see is the gospel just threaded through the whole thing. It's beautiful. But if you rush in and you're in the weeds and you're you know, like going through your closet, I can't find my other shoe. You missed the whole thing. The whole night is spoiled because you're in a rush. So just slow down. There's no rush. Let the Spirit's wisdom speak to you through Scripture, receiving the mind of Christ with the same vigor 
you receive the Lord's Supper, for example. If you're a believer, the Spirit will encourage you in all of this. So says Scripture. If you're a believer, the Spirit will encourage you. Go to 1 Corinthians 2.10. 1 Corinthians 2.10. You see how simple it is? It's very simple, folks. Once you got that big picture, once you understand why you're here on earth after salvation, once you understand that uh, even though the Bible is you know, this thick, it's really talking about one central theme, Jesus Christ, His saving work on a cross. Once you realize that, I mean, it's free. You're all set. The rest is just details that you learn. And every time you find a detail, it's like you took the time. You know, when you chew on this side of your mouth, and then you chew on this side of the mouth, then you chew on the tip, you know, and you're like, this is so good. It's like that. You get the details of the meal. But it's still the same meal. 1 Corinthians 2.10. People are like, I don't chew like that. I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> uh, reminds me of like fifth grade science class, remember? Oh, the, the tart taste buds are over here and the sweet one's over here and you're like licking a lollipop and then sweet. Nobody? All right. 1 Corinthians 2.10. For to us... For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. I mean, who's going who's to explain the things of God to you? I can't. I can teach you Scripture. I can give you some wisdom. I can guide you. I can do whatever to get you going. But this is a supernatural reality, folks. That's why we call it the spiritual life. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, an unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So that's encouraging. Have fun reading your Bible. Take it easy. God, the Holy Spirit, will be right there with you. So learn to relax and get that flesh out of the way. How much fun, for example, has it been reading Scripture even tonight? Honestly. I mean, is there anything better than tasting the Word of God? Tasting the very bread of life? No. It's perfect fun. There's nothing better than reading the Word of God. Granted, we aren't physically doing cartwheels in the parking lot, but do you really think that's what heaven's going to be like, doing cartwheels down some gold-laden street or something? No. Bill's like, I'm totally going to be doing cartwheels. <laughs> Lois is like, my knee's going to be better. I'm doing a few at least. I'm going to be right with you, Lois. Or do you think we'll be simply in a state of perpetual peace and love? What do you think? And why can't we have a bit of that now? 
Why can't we just relax? Why would we be uptight coming to church? Why would church not be something you would want to do whenever it's open? Why would it make you uptight? Why would reading Scripture with this kind of lens ever make you uptight? Unless something's wrong. That's what the Spirit's been saying. If, if you're a believer and you don't want to read the Word of God, something's awry. Something's not right yet. If you're afraid to read it because you think you're not, quote-unquote, intelligent enough, that's garbage. Because then the Holy Spirit doesn't have a ministry, I guess. I guess we can just throw them out, right? No, of course not. We just read Scripture. So just one last exercise before we get back to our mainstream study with experiential sanctification proper up here on the board. <clears throat> so much of what we've been learning on this little sidebar regarding theology, application, um, other such principles, choose wisely. Ask yourself these questions. If you had to choose between more faith or more knowledge, which would you choose? I bet you a couple of years ago, some of you might say more knowledge. Some of you may not have answered that. Some of you would have pursued it, though. I'm in a hurry. I've got to get as much knowledge as possible. But now, knowing what you know, if you had to choose between more faith or more knowledge, which would you choose? Which are you currently pursuing? And be honest. Which one are you currently pursuing? And which is an exclusive gift to believers? Technically, I could get a parrot to regurgitate Scripture. Just saying. But I can't impart faith to him. All right, that's it for that. Changing gears. It's time for us to get back on to where we left off, I don't know, quite a few classes ago. But we need to retrace our steps a little bit. We need to, as I say, come out of the mine shaft. We've been sort of in this little deep dive. Remember where we're at between salvation perspective, sanctification perspective. We did all the work on salvation. We got through positional sanctification. Now we're on experiential sanctification. It makes total sense. I mean, this is where we're at. Experiential sanctification is a lot to be said on this topic because that is kind of life as we know it. We're grounded in salvation, but we are sanctified daily, experientially. So we need to retrace our steps a little bit. We recently spent a little time on walking, which is a very close relative theologically to sanctification. Walking, a la Colossians 1.10, we read that passage at least three or four times. This was one of our conclusions. God has empowered us to do His commands. That's walking. He's qualified us, remember, too. God has empowered us to do His commands. That's walking. It's by grace through faith that we do so. Remember, commands in the Bible are really just an expression of God's will for His children. That's the healthiest, most uh, plainly stated way to think about commands in the Bible. They are expressions of God's will for His children. That's what a command is. Now, you may choose to go against a command, 
But in general, that's the best way to think about a command in the Bible, that that is God's expressed will for his children. If you struggle with how you personally will ever walk according to his commands, consider the example that I gave you last Thursday evening, up here on the board, experiencing theology, looking back on your own life, Consider how much God has done in and through you. Your experience highlights God's basic promise that He will sanctify you. Is there anyone in here that's going to say they haven't been sanctified more so than they were 10 years ago? Anyone? So you have to say to yourself, you know what? The proof is that the... Your experience basically is a proof point of theology that has never changed. In other words, your experience in life just illuminates theology that's been around since before the dawn of man. If God makes a promise and he says, I'm going to sanctify you, guess what happens? He's going to sanctify you. And if you're honest and you look back, everyone in here, bar none, has been sanctified. So guess what that means? He's not a liar. And that believers actually do, really do get sanctified. He promises. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work, and you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, just to cover all bases and concentrate, and I don't want to confuse anyone here, just being thorough, even if you don't yet see anything, he is doing in or through you. It doesn't mean that your theology, for example, Philippians 1.6, ought to be modified. Just because you don't yet see anything that he's doing or has done in or through you never means, this is the key objection from the Spirit as this last week has been going, should never mean that your theology is modified just because you can't see something that God can. As Scripture clearly states, there are many things that He does that we never see, and it is absolutely in and through us. For example, I just was thinking off the cuff, as you pulled into church this evening, which was basically a good thing, by the way, Your friend and business associate happened to see your car pulling into a local church. That, my friend, was a good thing. Even though you didn't see your friend drive by and notice you doing so. That's a perfect example. That's an example of theology holding true while you remained ignorant to it. Perfect example. You don't know what the ripple effect of your life is. Just you driving to class. You might say, oh, I don't see anything he's doing. But your buddy just drove by and said, oh my word, that so and Todd Johnson goes to church? I would never guessed it. (laughs) Have you ever seen him on a job site? Like a drunken sailor. I'm just kidding. Throwing things and swearing. I'm just kidding. Oh, but just you, this is a silly but a real example. You don't know what your witness is. I tell people that all the time. Never underestimate your impact in the lives of others. You just coming to church. You just showing up tonight 
edifies me. You may say, I don't know anything I've been doing, anything. You're here, I see you, I'm edified, thank you. There was a time you wouldn't have done it. There was a time you would have stayed home, laid on the couch or whatever you do when you don't come to church. I don't know. (laughs) This is why we ought never artificially try to be something we're not. I mean, take the aforementioned example. The Bible actually speaks to it. If you purposely, let's suppose, you purposely wanted your friend to see you pulling into the church parking lot, it would have potentially ruined the moment. (laughs) Blinker. You know, blinker. Don't believe me? Go to Matthew 6.1. Go to Matthew 6.1. Oh, hey, I was just calling, you know, I was just calling right before I went into church. Just seeing how you're doing, because I'm going to church. I heard you had a little, I heard you stubbed your toe. I'll pray for you. At church, that's how I roll. I'm holy. At church. Kind of might ruin the moment. Just saying. <laughs> you know, Scripture talks about this kind of silliness. Matthew 6.1 Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Oh! There it is. Yeah. It's amazing if you just read your Bible, what you find in there. It's incredible. But I didn't get to get to that because I was stuck in Matthew. I've been in Matthew 1 for 16 years. Really? How's that been treating you? I have no idea what the heck I'm doing. I have no idea about the big picture. All I know, I've been doing word studies ever since I started this thing. And I'm just, I, you know. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Do you have to be a Ph.D. in theology to understand what uh, Christ... That's red letters, right? What, do you really have to be a Ph.D. in theology to understand what Christ was getting at here? Do you really have to be? He's saying, stop being a jackass. <laughs> he was just kinder than me. He's like, stop it. What are you doing? You're ruining it for everyone. This is what the unbelievers even do. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, the key verse opens the chapter in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. So the point the Spirit's making is simple. Don't try to be something or someone you're not. I taught a few lessons on this. And it really helps you to go like this, doesn't it? Just stop trying to be someone you're not. 
Stop faking faith. Stop faking love. Stop faking it. Stop trying to be someone that you're not. The Lord hates hypocrisy. Not a fan of hypocrites. So stop trying to be someone you're not. It's not even your job to sanctify you. You know whose job it is? It's his job. So it's like an insult. Don't worry about it, God. I'm just going to outstrip you a little bit. I know you've got me right here, but, you know, I'm going to be right here. I'm going to, I'm going to fill in the gap so that I'm this much more holy, you see. That's insulting. So stop trying to be someone you're not. The funny thing is, if you're posturing, you're here. If anything, you're actually here. Right? But, in any case, the Lord hates hypocrisy. Just be yourself. The running example up here on the board, relative to supernatural walking, do you have to try to be grateful? No. You can be reminded of things to be grateful for, but God is the one who gives us the ability to be grateful. That's true grace. If you try to be something you're not, you're a hypocrite. Romans 12.9, up here on the board. Let love be without hypocrisy. So stop trying to be something you're not. Stop pretending that you love. I love you so much. I just love you. <laughs> stop trying to be something you're not. If you're impatient, just know that that is the flesh comparing itself to someone else, undoubtedly. But so-and-so, I think they really do love everybody. How do you know, first of all? But second of all, what are you doing comparing yourself to that person? How do you know? They could be complete, they could be a whitewashed tomb. They could be horrible on the inside. It's you. So if you're impatient, that's your flesh. So resist the flesh's temptation to do that. Learn to relax, and you're ready. Be yourself. Please learn to be yourself. You're wonderfully made. God didn't make a mistake. Oh, but, but, you know, he could have taken a little off my hips over here. You know? Could have made me a little taller or uh, smarter or more holy. I heard God gives each a measure of faith. Why don't I have all the faith? Seriously? Oh, Clay? Go to Romans 12.1. Proper theology says something more edifying and stabilizing for you to chew on this evening. Just remember that this is God's game, for lack of a better term. That you are exactly where you're supposed to be, how you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to be, everything about you, the way you look, act, you breathe, your problems, your hang-ups, your issues, your family. Your, oh, you're going to love Saturday's blog, by the way. Your family, your, you know, all these things are from God. So just be yourself. A lot of miserable people out there that want to be someone else. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed. In other words, take what He's given you and present that. That's your form of worship. Take what he's given you. Be yourself. Let him do 
the good work that he said he's going to do in you. Get the heck out of the way. Stop trying to be someone you're not. Stop pretending to love and pretending to be faithful and pretending to be all religious when you're not. Because that's not even humility. And God gives grace to who? The humble. If you ever want to get to point B, stop trying to pretend you're already there. Because if you pretend you're already there, that's not humble. You won't get there. It'll just be a fake it the whole time. That makes sense. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We ought not be concerned with others' faith, other than be encouraged by it, maybe like Romans 1.12, so we should stop looking left and right. That's God's business, who he gives uh, faith and who he doesn't to, this kind of a thing. Verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. What matters then is humility. Up here on the board. And again, we're backing out of the mine shaft. These are all the things that took us down this way. We're coming back out. We're just sort of covering some ground as we come back to our mainstream study with um, sanctification perspectives. These are, this is some of the ground that we covered. What matters at the end of the day is your humility. You trying to be something you're not, you being a hypocrite is not humble. There's your proof that you're arrogant. But I want to be more loving. Don't we all? But whose business is that to sanctify us? It's God's business to sanctify us, not our own. So we can't fake it till we make it type thing. What matters is humility. Faith is received by the humble. Even though the overarching theology states dogmatically that God will sanctify all of his children, some children grow up quicker than others in faith. Why? Because some people are just flat out more humble. I guess. That's the only thing I can come come up with based on Scripture, that some people are just more humble than others. And so they accelerate to a certain degree. It's a simple formula if there ever was one. The key ingredient for us, the only thing we have to say about the whole topic is humility. Faith is received by the humble. This has been a major theme for a month now. You want to be sanctified? You're impatient? Well, relax. Seriously, relax. Let it go. Let go a little bit. Relax. Be humble. Trust Him. He says He's going to do this thing, then He's going to do it in His timing. You being white-knuckled and arrogant and a hypocrite does not help matters. He's going to wait until you're ready to let go. Faith is received by the humble. How many times has James 4, 6 come up in our studies? A bazillion? Part B in the message. Love it. God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing humble. Willful implies full of human will, which points to the flesh. 
And he's against that. The willful, proud. Which points to the flesh doing. Whereas willing implies not already full, but open to being filled. Which points to the humble. And if you don't know how all that works exactly, I'm here to tell you, it's okay. These are supernatural realities. We have to base our own realities on theology proper. If theology proper is this wide, and we can only conceive or conceptualize this much of it, then we have to accept that here we are and this is theology. And there's a lot of space that we don't understand. I mean, how, seriously, how did God... All right, ask yourselves right now. Given some of your ridiculous paths, how did you get here this evening? I mean, really, how are you still alive after some of the antics you pulled even as a kid? Seriously, how are you still alive? But yet, here you are this evening. How did God pull that off for you? How do we know? How did someone, seriously, given your antics when you were, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're not young, I don't really care to know. How has someone else in your life not killed you yet? Seriously, right? How has someone else in your life, given your antics, not killed you? How do you know that God the Holy Spirit didn't restrain that person, or plural, if you're crazy, those people from literally, not kind of, literally picking up a gun and killing you? Some of you could say, I could see that happen in some of the things I've done in my life. You don't know, but you know that what theology says, you don't have to understand everything that he's doing in your life. You really don't. You don't have to understand it all to have faith. Isn't that Hebrews 11.1? That's what this is all about. So you actually have to relax, accept theology. That's all that stress on theology has been lately. Stop giving so much emphasis on personal experiences and such, because that only whoops theology. You may not understand everything about how God works, and that's not just okay, I mean, that's expected. The Scripture says how unfathomable are His ways. I mean, how unsearchable are they? We're not supposed to understand the omniscient God, not fully anyways. He gives us what we need, including faith. So if you don't know exactly how that works, it's okay. It just means that it's like when you don't know how all the parts of a car work. Remember that little analogy? So you pray that God provides you all the means necessary to sanctify you, to transport you where you need to go. You literally pray for that vehicle, the throughway, if you would, which is what? Faith. Like the apostles said to the Lord in Luke 17, 5, increase our faith. Yeah, increase our faith then. That's something you could pray for. You have to be humble. And I just wonder in closing how, how many people would be much better off expending all the energy they currently spend on trying to be a Christian, on simply getting down on their knees and praying. Think about that. If you could take all the energy you've taken 
in the past, you know, trying to be Christian, which is ridiculous, trying to be something you're not. If you take all that energy and then transfer it to just praying, I wonder how that would work out. Honestly. Once, in other words, once you stop being full of yourself, once you stop trying to be Joe Christian, and you're down on your knees and, and you're fellowshipping with God that intimate way, He's really going to talk to you. He can't, he can't get to you over your own stupid voice when you're trying to be something you're not. Because you're on the street corner like the hypocrites blowing a trumpet or, or praying aloud. or You know, you can't even hear. So I'll leave you with this. Regarding your faith, now make it personal. Regarding your faith, it's possible God's simply waiting for you to ask. Yeah. Some of you are so proud that you won't even ask God. You won't ask Him for more faith. You're still too proud to simply ask. You're still too busy trying to be a Christian rather than actually praying. Spending your time with Him. Being humble. Praying for things that, you know, quote-unquote, truly matter, like your faith. I believe there's an absolute simplicity to all of this that I'm hoping none of you ever lose sight of from now until the day you die or we're raptured. All of this, our destiny, our commission in life, it's all about the gospel. It's very simple, my friends. Very. It's all about the gospel. It's that simple. We're on part 82 for a reason. Because we need to get it right. We need to learn, not for the sake of learning more doctrines. Rather, we need to focus on the one that truly matters most. We've got to take these times to realize how Satan in the kingdom of darkness has muddied the gospel. We need to go to war college to understand the strategies of our enemies. God is building our faith each and every day. Faith in the gospel itself. And this is the big picture perspective, my friends. That is God's. His perspective, His gospel, is what becomes our sanctification That's what this is all about. It's not hard, folks. So just relax. Learn to be yourselves. Let Him do the thing that He's promised to do in you. And enjoy it. Enjoy the ride. We're going to all be under tribulation. And we're going to have to persevere. But perseverance builds character, right? And hope and these kinds of things. So that's the big picture. Please don't lose it. We're going to head on back to... Uh, sanctification proper uh, in the very near future. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.